Coffeehouse. Today we have new fiction, War is Hell, but it's also clarifying. This is For Whom the Bell Tolls. It was published in 1940 and written by Ernest Hemingway. It tells the story of a young American helping in the Spanish Civil War just before World War II. So as always, we will go through the contents of the book. We're going to do an analysis to talk about the, the good parts and the bad parts of the book. And then we will just do some quotes, I think. I don't think we have a big picture for this one, but... This is number 70 of the 100 greatest books of all time. That means we've officially been through 30 out of the 100, and it's nice to get some fiction in, and I think it's apropos of things going on in the world at this moment. So the contents. The title, of course, is from John Donne. John Donne was one of my favorite poets when I was a, a kid. He's one of the earliest poets that I read extensively. But this is the poem. It's short poem, so we can go through the whole thing. It starts... No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So that's John Donne. That's what the book is based on, for whom the bell tolls. So there's actually not a tremendous amount of things that happen in this book. The plot itself is pretty lean. We're not going to go beat by beat through this. I think we were pretty uh, thorough when we went through Frankenstein. And like I said, sometimes we go one by one and really go thoroughly through the book. Sometimes we just do it as more of a broad overview. And this we will not go beat by beat, but we are going to have spoilers. So if you haven't read it, you might want to read it first. There are some early things to note before getting to the actual content. The prose itself is kind of written as if it's the English representation of Spanish. So it has a very particular character in the writing. There's a lot of use of the word thou and kind of mannered speech. So it's not standard prose that you would see in an English work. There are times when the narrator, the protagonist, he kind of questions himself. He'll talk to himself about his motives and his interests. And he'll kind of go back and forth on what he actually thinks or what he thinks he thinks. And how he assesses himself in doing his job or what kind of a person he is. So that's something that will come up again and again throughout the book. So Robert Jordan, the main character, is an explosives expert, and there is some sense of autobiography in this work in that Hemingway was involved in this kind of fighting, and we don't know how much of everything that happened was uh, definitely autobiographical, but he definitely had some experiences that contributed to the writing of this book. So Robert Jordan's the main character, and his job, he joined these guerrillas, the rebels, and he's an explosives expert, so what he's planning to do is to blow up a bridge that is necessary for the nationalists to use, and in so doing, assist the rebellion. So as I said, the dominant group are the nationalists, and Jordan quickly befriends a group of guerrillas that include a few characters that are important. There's Pilar, she is the wife of Pablo, who's another member of the group, and she's kind of this harsh middle-aged woman, and so she has uh, some contentious moments with Robert Jordan. 
and with other members of the group, but she's also kind of the, I don't know, pragmatic heart. You know, she can be just harshly honest with a lot of the group members, but there's an affection between, like, Robert Jordan and her and Maria. Uh, Maria is the young love interest of Robert Jordan, and she was a woman who was taken by the nationalists and abused and then ended up with the guerrillas who uh, are protecting her now, and that's why she's with this group. But then, so she and Robert Jordan develop this relationship. It's not even necessarily developed. <laughs> it's just that they have it instantly. <laughs> and it's kind of a central thematic tool throughout the book. You know, sometimes it comes off as uh, superficial because it's not the basis of the story. It's not the point that they go through these things together and then grow together and come to love one another. That's not the point. It's just that they, they kind of run into each other, decide this is going to be the case, that they're in love with each other, and then it goes on from there. And it's used as a foil to examine some of the themes that we have coming later on. And then, like I said, Pablo. Pablo is, he's kind of hot-headed, and he will have some roles going forward. When it comes to figuring out what to do and what happens, he'll have some significance in that. So there's a conflict in the camp of guerrillas over whether to blow up the bridge. And I kept picturing it, it made me think of Red Dead Redemption 2, the video game. I don't know how many people have played it. It's one of kind of the few video games ever created that you can ascribe a kind of literary complexity to. But the central idea in that is that uh, there's this group of outlaws and they have this camp, this moving camp where they have a bunch of different people and it's kind of them against the world. But there are different members of the group that have, you know, various personalities that will help and hinder the group in various ways and your main character. So this is kind of how I picture it. You've got this group of guerrillas that are hiding out in forests trying to figure out how to best fight the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. And so you have them butting heads and you have them developing relationships and they have disagreements and they have resolutions and all that sort of thing. So Pablo initially, he's against blowing up the bridge. He's concerned about the risk that it poses to the group, you know, the guerrillas. And there's discussion even of killing Pablo, just putting him, putting him down so he's not a risk of spoiling the plan. But then they go to another group and another group of guerrillas who is doing a similar thing. And they ask them what they believe is the best thing to do when it comes to the bridge and whether they should blow it up. And the other group is also concerned about the danger to the people who are going to be embroiled in this mission. So as far as I remember, they return to their original guerrilla group and Pablo comes around, but kind of suspiciously. You're not sure whether he actually is agreeing suddenly to the to the plan or not. And this is but this is also right before they decide that they're going to take drastic measures against Pablo. So there's kind of a, an, a narrative ambiguity there from what I recall. Anyway, during the entirety of this duration, you have them being pursued by the nationalists who are trying to find these groups of guerrillas, and they eventually come upon the other group of guerrillas, and that group is killed. So there's this constant sense of threat that this could happen at any time and nullify the group and what the group is trying to accomplish. There's this real sense of inevitability that's kind of built into everything that the book is. You know, all the structures and storylines and the way the characters act and they interact with each other. There's this real sense of inevitability. At a certain point then, Pablo absconds with most of the explosives that are necessary to blow up the bridge. So there are only, you know, scraps of explosives left over, which may or may not be enough. And Robert Jordan and the group decide that they're going to attempt it anyway. 
So there's this memorable scene wherein Robert Jordan is trying to plant these explosives while the nationalists are coming and the group is in disarray and doing all this fighting and eventually on after he's planted it and blown it up he's fleeing and his horse is shot and it collapses on him. So he's severely injured and he's trapped on this horse and he has this moment with Maria where he talks to her in these terms about how we are one. You have to go. I can't go with you but we are one and that's the important thing to remember about everything that's happened so far. And then ultimately uh, he decides that he's going to, instead of putting himself down, he decides that he is going to fight it out against the fascists. And that's the end of the book. So we are going to do some quotes first. So you get an idea of the writing style of this book, and then we're going to do an analysis. So the quotes, quote, for what are we born if not to aid one another? End quote. That goes to the, of course, theme of the poem is that no man is an island entire unto himself. Each man's death diminishes me. It goes back to that idea. Quote, No animal has more liberty than the cat, but it buries the mess it makes. The cat is the best anarchist. End quote. So the, just that analogy between the cat being the most uh, free animal, but how it buries the mess it makes. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to. You know, it could just be itinerant and do whatever it wants, but it still buries its mess. Quote, dying was nothing, and he had no picture of it nor fear of it in his mind, but living was a field of grain blowing in the wind on the side of a hill. Living was a hawk in the sky. Living was an earthen jar of water in the dust, of the threshing with the grain flailed out and the chaff blowing. Living was a horse between your legs and a carbine under one leg and a hill and a valley, and a stream with trees along it and the far side of the valley and the hills beyond, end quote. So that's, you know, very Hemingway. Lots of ands. The sentence keeps going on. It just flows. It has these big thematic ideas built into it about dying and living. But I like this sentiment, but living was a field of grain blowing in the wind on the side of a hill. Dying is nothing. Dying you don't know anything about, but living you know something about. And it has all these characteristics. And then, quote, the world is fine place and worth fighting for. And I hate very much to leave it, end quote. One of the most arresting Hemingway quotes that I'm aware of, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it. I mean, that is just so clear and straightforward and in your face. It doesn't have any circuitous route that you have to take to get to the meaning of it. It's just so clean. I just, I love that quote. <laughs> the most recent, I think the first time that I encountered that quote was at the end of Seven, at the end of David Fincher's Seven. I didn't know what it was at the time. I hadn't read this book the time I first saw Seven or anything, but I thought it was a, an interesting quote. But yeah, that one is, is worth the price of admission to run to that quote. So analysis. I've read this book three times now, and for some reason, I just cannot get into this book the same way that I can get into other Hemingway books. It never feels like much is happening, despite it being one of the longer books. You know, I want to like it, and it has this great setting, it's a great setup, in that you have this American who joined the Spanish Civil War who's trying to help out, and he just has this one thing that he needs to do. You know, hack writers would uh, do something much grander about how they have to, they do this battle and that battle, and they have to go here and there, and there's all this stuff going on. But a great writer like Hemingway can do it in such a, a microcosm that makes it so interesting. You know, all he has to do, the only idea that he has to effectuate as part of the, the grander theme of war is to blow up this one bridge. Great setup. 
But for some reason, you know, I think there's a distance that's created when you actually hear the dialogue. And I don't think I had any quotes of dialogue. Of course, I should have put quotes of dialogue in there so we have an idea of that. But when I'd read the dialogue, it just kind of, it created a distance between me and the subject matter and what was actually happening. And there were a lot of conversations and, you know, they would go on and on in some cases. And I understand the central romantic relationship. It's not used as a romantic relationship is used in a lot of kind of fiction. It's used more for the thematics. You know, the point is that they are connected the way the poem suggests that people are connected, not that they are connected in a singular way that is separate from the rest of mankind. So it wouldn't make sense to have them be the kind of, uh, you know, separate romantic entity as opposed to a broader understanding of just that connection to mankind. And that's why it makes sense for them to have an instant connection, instant decision that they were just going to be in love with each other and they were going to support each other no matter what. But there was something in that that kind of left a hollow feeling as he went through. I feel like there could have been some better way to manage the narrative thrust of it relative to the thematic thrust. And I'm not sure that there is. (laughs) You know, obviously Hemingway is an incredible writer. But there was something that that was a little hollow in the center of this as I'm going through. Maybe that's the point too, because when it comes to his themes, the point is that war is hell for all sides. It's not this big heroic narrative story wherein you get to meet some gorgeous girl and you get to take her and be happy with her or you get to have this noble self-sacrifice in the midst of this heroic narrative in battle. It's not triumphant. There are no moments of triumph in war. And one thing that's emphasized, um, you know, from the beginning is that they're all concerned about the danger that is posed to them and they all expect that some very bad things are going to happen to them once they effectuate this plan and that that is inevitable. There's nothing they can do about that. So it's not this kind of, you know, exciting, invested, we need to accomplish this thing because it's going to be so grand and important. It really is just this representation of how much war is just hell for both sides. And for Hemingway, you know, in reference to the poem, it's about the fact that any death diminishes mankind. Everybody is connected, so any death diminishes it. And war is, you know, an extermination on two sides of mankind where we shouldn't be doing that. So, and also recall, this is after World War One. you know, this was, he wrote it in, what, 38 and 39, and just in the midst of the beginning of World War Two, this would have been the most cynical point in history, when you have the most destructive war that has ever occurred, with modern weapons suddenly, and everybody's still reeling and trying to figure out what the hell anything means from that, and you're getting right back into another war. So more things related to the whole love interest idea is, like I said, there's an instant connection. There's nothing really to back it up. In some other kinds of narratives, you would have these kind of deep psychological reasons that they have a connection to each other. And that would be explored and established. But in this book, it's just a decision in a moment. They're already connected and it's kind of ironclad and that's that. And then by the end, he's saying that, okay, we are now one. So you have to continue on. So like I said, the whole idea might have been that he didn't want that to be a normal kind of a romantic story because it fits within the theme of war is hell and everybody is connected. So that's For Whom the Bell Tolls. You know, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if I actually did an episode on this at some point before we got to it, just because I had read it before. Or was that another Hemingway? Did we already do A Farewell to Arms? I cannot 
remember. But whatever the case, the next book is going to be Emma by Jane Austen. That's the next one on the list. So it'll be a little lighter, definitely a little lighter. And it'll be a nice contrast when we're trying to figure out what love is and how it's portrayed in other kinds of books. So I hope you will join me for that one. Uh, I hope you go listen to the other ones as you have the time and interest. And I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs) 